your Bibles, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to make it all the way through the end of chapter 10 today, and uh, this is a great passage of Scripture, so let me, let me just kind of uh, catch you up very quickly with where we were last week, where what we, what we said last week, or what the writer of Hebrews showed us, is after about four chapters of very intense theology, I mean, he's been teaching us about Christ, and, and over and over showing us that Christ is the substance, all these other things in the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament priesthood, the high priest, the uh, Melchizedek, the law, all these things were simply shadows. The substance is Christ. And he showed us this in, in every way uh, he could think of. And we sort of uh, slogged through that over several weeks, and it was amazing. It was profound. But then last week, he, he, he came and, and, and did something really practical. He said, okay, so now what bearing? What does all this mean? What, what difference should it make? If we know those truths, what difference should it make? And so one of the things we saw is that it should make like really, really practical uh, differences in our lives. And one of those things, uh, Stephen just mentioned it, is, is even church attendance. I mean, it's sort of habitually coming together. And we talked about why that's a benefit. I, I told you about why it's a benefit in my life and, and how, how people, there's, there is this wonderful effect of, of being in church regularly, listening to the word of God regularly, could be having the community. What we said is what he's doing here is he's saying that the fight of faith is a community project. Now, uh, you, you might have been here last week or you weren't, but you, you might go, okay, so I'm supposed to go to church and I'm, I'm supposed to help other people. And, you know, it kind of feels maybe like yada yada to you. I mean, what, what's actually at stake? I mean, is there anything bigger here that I'm supposed to hang on to? Is there anything that's really important for me other than just I'm supposed to be at church? I mean, what's really at stake in the fact that I am or am not in church? What's really at stake in the fact that I am or am not in really vital relationships with other Christians? And that's what he's going to tell us today. Um, he's going to help us understand in uh, no uncertain terms that there are massive, massive issues at stake in your life and mine if we choose to ignore, if we choose to believe. That, you know, this, all we do is we come together and sing a few songs and we hear a sermon and we go home and that's really all this is. That's not what he wants. He wants this to be an anchor. He wants this to do something in your life that is far, far more profound and, and in fact, wants it pro to, to protect you uh, from something, something uh, quite terrifying, in fact, okay? So that's where we get to today. So what he's going to do is we're going to talk about the future, talk about the past, talk about the present in that order, okay? So we'll start off with the future, we'll go to the past, we'll get to the present at, at the very end. Okay, so the first thing he wants you to see, if you'll turn with me to chapter 10, verse 26, is he gives us a warning uh, about the future. So look at chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 26. For, so I'm picking up on where I left off last week, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge, the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? 
For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, there's a lot we could say about those uh, six verses right there, but let me just, I want to sort of focus you in on a couple things. Notice he starts off by saying, if we, okay, so I mean, he puts himself right in the middle. If any of us, there's nobody excluded, nobody's immune, you're not too mature to fall into this trap. The writer of Hebrews himself identifies with the we and says, if we do this, then these things will happen. And then he gives this really horrifying warning. Now, now why, why does he give us a warning? What, what's, there, there, are, there are very famous, if you walk through the book of, uh, of Hebrews, you, you run into what are called the warning passages, okay? He's writing to Christians and he's warning them not to do certain things. So is he warning them, you know what, you could lose your salvation. I, I, I don't think that's what he's doing at all. I think what he's saying is that God is, God is trying to do something in your life. He's trying to show you something, and God gives us actual, there are actual things uh, in our lives as Christians that if we are heeding them, then, then, then we know we are really his. But, but here's, here's, here's one thing. Um, let, me, let me frame the issue this way. Why the warnings? Uh, the Bible teaches, you'll not see these words, but the Bible essentially teaches that, that the church, you can look at the church in a couple of ways. There is the invisible church and there's the visible church. Okay, the visible church is the church that you and I see. Now, so, so we, we go to Foothill Church and I see a church. I go to uh, Glenkirk and I see a church. I go to Cornerstone, I go to CCV, I go to Grace, whatever. There's the visible church. There's people there. There's people there that are saying, I'm a Christian. There's people there that are saying, I'm a Christian and I'm walking with God and, and there's no sort of known deliberate sin in their life. And we look and we say, okay, these people, for all, for all we can observe, are part of the body of Christ, and they're visible. So, so all over the world, there is a visible expression to the body of Christ. That's what we see. But there's also an invisible church. The invisible church is what God sees. Right? And God's got perfect vision. And God can actually look and say, I know, I know who, is, who actually belongs to Christ. I know who has actually placed their faith. I can look inside their heart and I know they're not hiding any sin from me. So I know who are actually mine and where Chris or you or I, we, we can't look and, and, and we have no ability. We might sense that there's fruit or not fruit. There might be some external indications, but for all intents and purposes, I can't tell. But God can and so one of the things that we know, and Jesus is going to teach this, and Paul's going to teach this, I mean, it's all over, it's, uh, John's going to teach it, is that in every visible church, there are people who do not belong to the invisible church, okay? In every, in every body, there are people who may look to be Christian, but are not. And so one of the things the writer is doing whenever we run into these warning passages is he's saying to us, look, I'm going to give you a test. I'm going to help you sort of self-administer and go, is this me or not? And if it is, you know, depending on your answer, 
then this is going to help you understand whether you are truly part of the invisible, the actual church, genuinely a Christian, or you're not. And so what does he want us to see? He's going to give us this test, and he's going to answer. He's going to say, okay, so, so here it is. Here's the test. Do you go on sinning deliberately? Now, notice how he worded that. If you go on sinning deliberately, go on. Not, you know what, oh, man, um, I slipped up today. You know, I did this one time. Maybe I've done it a couple times, but it's this, it's this characterization. It's a pattern of your life. It's something you return to over and over and over. But it's not just that because it's possible that you have a repetitive sin, that you have a besetting sin that absolutely grieves your heart that you hate. And so he says, if you go on sinning deliberately, um, he's not talking here about sinning unknowingly like you know uh he's not talking about you know i i inadvertently drove 35 miles per hour through a 25 mile an hour school zone oops i didn't know no he's saying no you knew you absolutely knew and you did it on purpose and if you do that and you go on and you have a lifestyle that's characterized by sinning over and over again and you can say I'm doing this on purpose and I know I'm doing it and I'm going back to it again and again that then he says you do that then um, in his words There is no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I mean, the blood of Christ isn't sufficient for you. It's it's not, his sacrifice doesn't cover your sins because they've never covered your sins. You just keep returning to it and you do it on purpose and you feel no remorse about it. If that's you, if you can keep returning to sin over and over and there is no remorse, then he says, then you need to know that you're not in. And he wants you to know that. He wants you to be absolutely sure. Christian, he's not trying to put you in a place of, oh no, am I in or out? He loves me, he loves me not. It's not that. He's trying to put you in a place where you can go, I can be sure. I can be sure. Is this happening to me? But I think there's more going on here. I don't think he's simply trying to give us a test. Um, I, I, think, I think this section is trying to also show us that there's something really big at stake in the fight of faith. If the fight of faith is a community project, like what's really at stake? I mean, is it just, you know, okay, so I walk a little better, I, I do, you know, I'm a little better husband, I'm a little better father, I'm a little better friend, whatever. No, there's something really massive at stake in this, and that's, that's really what he's driving at here. And he says that what's at stake here is eternity. What's at stake here is heaven and hell. This is why we need each other. This is why church, coming to church and making this a habitual part of your life, this isn't just some game that we play on the weekends. This is not just sort of some lame hobby that we like to tack on to our life. There's something really massive at stake here, and it's so massive, we can't play around with it by ourselves. I need you, you need me, we need each other to hang in there and stay the course. See, see, church is a spiritual habit because we need to be 
we need to come together regularly and be encouraged. That's what he said in verses 24 and 25. We need to come together and in the, in the verses today, be warned. Like what happens? So what, what is at stake if I decide to walk away? What is at stake if I decide this isn't for me, if I don't believe this anymore? And do you see the words he used in verses 26 to 31? What's at stake is, is judgment, fear, um, fury of fire, consumed, punishment, vengeance, I will repay. I mean, th- this is, this, I, I didn't make this up. This is not me talking. This isn't, you know, me trying to be sensational here. This is the Bible. The Bible tells you this is the God that you serve. And if you decide to ignore these warnings, and if you decide this is not for me and I don't really need it, and it's kind of an optional thing, no, he's saying, no, you gotta understand there's something really fearful. There's something at stake that if you don't, if you don't do everything in your power to stay connected to the life of faith, and part of that vital connection is your vital connection to a church, there's a very good chance that you will wander off. And if you wander off and you turn your back on this, then this is what results. And he says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And woe to me if I don't preach that to you. See, the culture and many Christians um, don't like to talk this way about God. And so they'll, they'll say things like, I like to think of God as blank. I like to think of Jesus as this. And usually what goes in there is something like unicorns and rainbows and love and laughter, right? It very rarely is, I like to think God as, as a God who feels great wrath against sin. I've never heard anybody fill that one in. But he does. I mean, Paul Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, look at this. Note then, note this, like make a note of it, be diligent in thinking about this, the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's, God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. That, that's, that's Hebrews chapter 10. See, there is a kindness and there is a severity to God. Now, I would suggest to you that most of us, if we're going to tilt one way, are going to tilt toward the kindness of God, right? I mean, I'm going I'm to look, and yes, God is loving, and God is gracious, and God is good, and God is kind, and we can say all these things and amen them because they're true. But God is severe. God is severe. And he says, we have to note, we have to be diligent to bear in mind that God is both kind and severe. Um, see, I don't, it's not just disobedient for you and me not to note both kindness and severity. It's unloving. It's unloving. I mean, that's just me talking. I mean, uh, I don't know how many of you know, you know, 
Penn and Teller, Penn Gillette, who's one half of Penn and Teller, he, he's got this sort of famous YouTube rant where he goes off kind of about Christians who proselytize and evangelize and, and he does not believe in hell. He does not think there believes, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't exist. But at one point in, in his rant, he essentially says, but if you believe there's a hell, I mean, if you really believe this, how unkind do you have to be not to tell me that? That would be like seeing me, you know, my back is turned and a bus is barreling down. This is his illustration. A bus is barreling down on me and you don't push me out of the way? How unloving do you have to be? I mean, if I got a, you know, my kids are grown, but if I, my kids were two and three years old and I walked and I said, come here, kid, you know, let's walk in the kitchen. Now, this is called a stove. And stoves are awesome. Watch me. See this flame? Ooh, isn't that beautiful? Now, what daddy can do on here, what mommy can do, is we can bake all kinds of wonderful things and grill and, and saute. and We can make your favorite meals. This, I love this stove. And son, daughter, I want you to love this stove like I do. But we never tell them. Um, but note well... This stove could kill you if you don't handle it properly. Note well that it could, you could pull something and severely injure yourself. Look, at, that's not just dangerous for me not to tell my kids that. That's not loving. That's just very, very unloving. It's not loving. The most loving community, you, you know, whether Foothill Church is your church or not, let me just say this. If, if you go to a church where they will not preach to you both the kindness and the severity of God, you're being betrayed. We have to note both. The most loving community is one that just tells you the truth about God. So I, I want you to know this. I mean, this, this is what's at stake, right? I, I want you to know this. See, this is a warning, and this is one way that God motivates his people. Not the only way, but it's one way. Many times he'll motivate us with encouragement. Many times he'll motivate us with a promise. He'll, he'll motivate us with grace, all kinds of things. But, but he is not, you know, a, a one-trick pony. He's got all kinds of medicines in his cabinet. He's got all kinds of weapons in his arsenal. And one of those weapons, one of those medicines is warning you. And if that's what the doctor ordered, if that gets you to change your life, if that gets you to turn and go, you know what, I got to shore some things up to you, then praise God, mission accomplished, prescription worked. That's what God is doing. I want you to know this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And he's saying, I want you to avoid that. I don't want that to happen to anybody. Note well. So that's, that's the warning. But now, now look what he does. Okay, so, so you guys are tempted to punt. You're tempted to give in. And so I'm warning you, what happens? I'm going to give you strategies for not giving in. One of those strategies is habitual church attendance. And one of those strategies is drawing near to God together. One of, there's, there's all these strategies. And I'm warning you that, if, that if, you, if you fail, if you decide to punt, here's what's going to happen. But now let me remind you about your past. Now let me show you something to sort of help you stay the course, okay? So, so look, at, look at verse 32. 
And he says, but recall the former days. Okay, so I've given you all this warning, and it's fearful. But, 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 recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that's saved, they were, they were saved, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Okay, so I'm, what's he doing? I'm, I, I'm, I'm taking you back. Maybe about 10, 15 years before this book is written. I'm taking you back to a time that you'll all remember. And I'm taking you to that moment when, remember, when, when it was like you, you, you suffered, you struggled, and that word, he says, what does he say? He calls it a hard struggle. It's the word that we get our English word athletics or athleticism from. It's idea, some of your translations say contest. You endured a hard contest. Like, and he's saying, remember that? Remember that really hard time you went through? And he says, and I, and I, and I, want, you, I want you to know, remember, remember, you struggled hard, right? You fought and you won and you got through. How, how many of you need to simply remember you're going through something right now and you can look back and see God's past faithfulness? Do you understand that God does that on purpose? God makes you look back to his past faithfulness so you can go look He's the same God yesterday, today, forever. And what he did for me then, he can do for me now. I mean, this is God all through scripture. Remember, children of Israel, remember he brought you out. Don't ever forget that. Remember when I brought you across the Jordan on dry land? I actually did it twice. I did it once through the Red Sea, now through the Jordan. And when you get on the other side, I want you to erect these monuments, these standing stones, so when your children pass by and go, Daddy, what are those stones? Oh, Oh, son, don't ever forget this. We crossed on dry ground. God brought us here. And he's not going to leave us or forsake us. Remember. Don't, don't ever forget. We are forgetful people. That's why David in Psalm 40, David, it's, it's this great psalm where, remember, he says, he says I, I cried out to the Lord and he inclined to me. This is the idea of God bending over and going, I hear you, right? It's like Horton hears a who. And, and, and he heard my cry. And when God hears, he does something. He says, and he reached down into the muck and mire. This is what Psalm 40 says. And he pulled me up and he put my feet on solid rock. And David says, and then I sang a song to you. You delivered, you saved me. Look what you did to me before, God. Look at how you came through. And you go read Psalm 40. Do you know why David remembers that? Because again in Psalm 40, he's going through it again and he doesn't know what to do and he doesn't know how he's gonna be delivered and he's got people coming against him and there's probably sin in his own life that he can't deliver himself from and he's saying, God, I'm remembering because you're that same God and I'm asking you to do it again. Saying, remember, don't ever, don't ever give up. Now, now look at verses 33 and 34. He says, so he says, recall the former days. So I'm gonna remember. Now, 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 how did you get through? How did you actually endure these trials? He says, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property. Stop right there. Now, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, how did you actually make it through? Think back to me with me. Think back to what happened, and now let's kind of unpack that together. 
what, what was it that I want you to remember? I want you to remember God's faithfulness, but I want you to see how God delivered you. And the thing I want you to see is that you were delivered because you were together, because the fight of faith is a community project. Because you came together. See, see look at that. Some people actually endured direct persecution. Right? Some, of you, some of you sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, but others being partners. So some of you actually intentionally put yourself in harm's way for the sake of somebody else. You, you became partners with people, and you had compassion on them, he said. You know what that word compassion means there? It means literally, the word means you felt together. I feel what you feel. I own what you're going through. Your suffering means my suffering. Your laughter and joy means my joy. Now, now do you see how this fits into the context of what we talked about last week? That will not happen. I will not feel together with somebody that I'm casually acquainted with. I will feel together with people that I've shared life with, people that I see every week, people that, that we know each other. That doesn't happen, as we talked about last week, when you're here 20, not, not here 20 times a year. That doesn't happen when this is not a habitual part of your life. That doesn't happen when you exclude yourself from growth groups, when you exclude yourself from the kind of vital community that you need. This is why it's so necessary. He says, because this is how we link arms. This is how we feel together. Like we come together and, and we do this together. That's the whole point. Now, now, why would they do this? Why would they feel? And why would they risk their lives? And why would he, as he says, look at this. Finish out the, cent- the, the, the uh, verse 34. Or uh, beginning of verse 34, he says, you had compassion on those in prison. okay. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So you went and visited somebody in prison. And you came home and somebody had ransacked your house, broken your windows, stole everything, and wrote, Christian, get out. And had a flaming cross on your, on your grass, on your front lawn. I mean, what, whatever. And you... Joyfully accepted. What, what in the world is going, how could anybody joyfully accept that? Look what he says. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's how. They knew something. They knew they had something better. They, they owned it. I mean, this was something, this was not some, some sort of theoretical idea. They recognized, I have a possession. When, when, when you know that there's something better being held out for you, you had a better possession and an abiding one that won't go away, it really doesn't matter what your present possessions are. I mean, if I've got a clunker sitting in the driveway, but I know that tomorrow uh, somebody's going to hand me the keys to a brand new car and tonight somebody steals my clunker, am I heartbroken? No, I'm going, whatever, take it. I have a better and an abiding one. I have something, Christ is better. Christ is abiding. He's never going to let go of me. He's never going to let me down. And you can take anything from me. 
possessions, my life. See, this is why this is why linking arms. This is why being a part of a body, this is why this is so important. Like none of this stuff happens casually. We need each other. So that's that past reminder. See how you needed each other back then? You still need each other now. Now, now look at this sort of present response in verse, uh, verse 35. So therefore, in light of everything I've just told you, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So, so you've got this need, you've got endurance, so don't throw it away. Like, here's your present need. Here's what you need today, right? You you need to hang on to the promises of God. You need to, to hold on, not punt, not give in. That's what you need right now. Because that is, that is a constant threat, isn't it? I'm not sure this is worth it. I, I, don't, I don't know that I want to keep putting up with this. This is harder than I thought it was going to be. And see, this is what we're doing here. This is what we're doing when we gather habitually together. This is what we're doing when we get into growth groups, right? This, this is the task of preaching. This is the task of community. It is that task that simply says, I'm here to help others hold on to the promises of God in Christ. Every week we come together, we reset our compass, we reset our priorities and say, this is all about helping me hold on, helping you hold on. That's what this is about. We don't want to give in. And so, so now, now look what he says in verses 37 and 38. He says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So a little bit of warning in here. Now what he just did is he paraphrased um, a, 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 a couple of verses from a book in your Old Testament called Habakkuk. Now, if you turn to your Old Testament, turn towards the end, you'll get there. We won't look at it right now, but Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4, this is basically a paraphrase. And what's happening in Habakkuk is Habakkuk is looking around, and he's just being honest, and he's going, you know what? I don't get it, God. This is not fair. I look around, and I see injustice, and I see wickedness prevailing, and I see your people trying to live for you, God, and and nothing seems to be going right for your people. And God, this is what we get for trying to be faithful. This is what we get. And God, God goes Habakkuk, live by faith. My righteous one will live by faith. Not by sight, Habakkuk, by faith. You don't look around and you don't, you don't judge all of eternity based on your present circumstances. You look and say, you know what? This is what I see right now, but Habakkuk, you live by faith. You live by faith in my promises. You live by faith in who I've shown myself to be. You trust me. You walk with me. You do not give up. You do not shrink back. Hang on to me, Habakkuk. Trust me. And the end is awesome because apparently Habakkuk does that and look what he says in 
verses uh, chapter three, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will, I will by faith rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's where Habakkuk gets to. I'm going to do this. And if my whole world gets turned upside down, if nothing goes the way that it's supposed to, the, the, you know, the flocks don't give birth and the fields and the, the produce that I'm trying to raise don't actually go anywhere, if I'm completely unsuccessful in the things I'm trying to do, yet I will trust. That's why I love that we recited Psalm 46 earlier. God is our refuge and our strength. A very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. We will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And then the writer of Psalm 46 says, Selah. I don't have to fear. God's my refuge. See, the writer of Hebrews is simply saying, look, Christ is coming back. Live by faith. Don't punt. Don't give in. Don't walk away. And now look at this. Look at verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. I love this. This is like I'm putting a stake in the ground. This is a declaration of faith. This is who you are. I like to think of this. I, I love those, those epic battle scenes in movies, you know. William Wallace, before they're going to go sort of in their final battle, and he, he runs up and down, and he's, he's giving his charge to the troops. Maximus and gladiator, you know, and, and if you find yourself in, in fields and all this, then know you're in Elysium, but you fought. Remember that one in, what's the last, uh, the Lord of the Rings? Return of the King, and they're at the, they're, they, they have to, Frodo and Sam are up there about to get what they're supposed to do, but they got to they get the army's attention, the army's a mortar, they got to get them to turn, and so they all go down, there's this little band of people, they're probably going to be wiped out, and Aragorn stands up, the king, and he, and he says, look, I see in you fear that would melt the heart of any man. And he says, but I'm, I'm telling you, you know, someday we may give in, but it will not be today. And he says, men of the West, stand, right, and fight. I mean, this is what he's saying, right? Stand, fight, don't give in. And this is not, this is not this sort of, you know, I'm finding the strength within myself. He's saying, do you see in context where you find it from? It's, it's we're locking arms together. We're fighting this thing together. I'm with you. You're with me. And this is why we need each other. This is why this is not just songs and sermons. This is why what happens here on a weekly basis is 
wonderful, encouraging, and deadly, deadly serious. I don't know where you are today. But I know if you're like me, there's moments when you're like, I want to give up. Or there's moments when you're like, I'm not sure this is worth it. Or I feel like the world's caving in. I feel like my world is turned upside down. And here's the writer of Hebrews saying, no, no, no. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are the righteous ones. And we, together, will live by faith. You are not alone. This is what we want to be as a church. If you're struggling today, I want you to know you're not struggling alone or you don't have to. Like we want to struggle together. We want to be people that lift up each other's arms and say, man, I'm, I'm here in the trenches with you. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, act like who you are. Who are you? And if you're a Christian, you're saying, I'm a child of God. You, you can go back to Psalm 46 and you can say, God is our refuge and our strength. He is right now a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And I love how that psalm ends. Come, behold, the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation upon the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then he says this, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is is our refuge. That's awesome. That's awesome. Not I wonder if he is. Are you really here to help me, God? Yes. I see everything. I know what you're going through. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who follow Jesus in faith our captain, our commander. The Lord of hosts is with us. We will not fear. Praise God. Let's pray.